Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, uh, it's time to get started. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks uh, for coming. Uh, I am Hannah Puckner, uh, Vice Provost for Faculty Diversity and Professor of Social Research and Public Policy here at NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Alondra Nelson uh, uh, to this talk. Um, uh, but before I do that and introduce her, I would like to thank the NYU Rodabi Institute for co-sponsoring this talk and uh, organizing uh, Alondra's visit uh, and uh, this talk. Uh, <coughs> we will have a, a the talk and then some time for <coughs> questions and discussions and uh, then we'll have a, a buffet uh, outside uh, and mingle uh, <coughs> and maybe continue the discussion that we've started here in this room, which hopefully will get somewhat warmer as, uh, as we go on. <laughs> uh, <coughs> so um, I think I covered all the bases, at least I hope. Uh, and so let me get to introducing uh, Alondra, uh, who is actually one of our own, so to speak. Uh, she graduated in uh, American Studies, um, PhD from New York University uh, in New York. Um, and then uh, became a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Yale, uh, where uh, she uh, was a great colleague. Uh, this, we shared, I think, quite a few years uh, at Yale. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I know one thing about Alondra that uh, I often think about, uh, and that is that she, in this period, taught a legendary freshman seminar that was oversubscribed every single time she offered it, uh, and produced many uh, students who were uh, educated and interested and uh, had great careers both at Yale uh, and after. Uh, and some of them uh, decided to study in the program that I was running in sociology at that time. Uh, and so I was always grateful for Alondra to send me these great students. Uh, <coughs> she won uh, one of the uh, highest teaching awards uh, at Yale. Uh, but also uh, published a book uh, and many articles. Uh, and even though we tried, I believe, our very best, uh, we couldn't keep her, and Columbia snatched her away. Uh, and it seems like in a blink of an eye, uh, <coughs> uh, she became a tenure professor uh, at Columbia and is now uh, dean of the social sciences. Uh, a little while ago, her second book came out, uh, which is uh, related to the issues that she will talk to uh, about today. And that book is called The Social Life of DNA. And it's a wonderful book uh, that talks about the many ways in which DNA uh, is not only the object of scientific inquiry, but also the, the object of helping us to define who we are uh, and where we're coming from. And that is uh, <coughs> very interesting. Uh, and I think we will hear a lot about this. Uh, so uh, <coughs> there are many things that I could say in addition to all of this uh, about Anandra. She's on the editorial boards of uh, several important uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, journals, academic journals in her field, uh, and she has written about a variety of issues, including health uh, and social movements. Uh, but I don't want to take time away from this uh, fascinating topic that she is going to talk about. So welcome, Alondra.
Thank you very much, Hannah, for that nice introduction. Um, and thank you to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for having me, um, particularly to Vice Provost um, uh, Kennedy and um, to Vice Provost Buckner. And uh, greetings to professors, the Gayatri Gopanath and uh, Ralph Katz, and greetings to all of you, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's my uh, first time ever in Abu Dhabi, my first time ever at NYU Abu Dhabi, and it's, uh, it's great to be here. So I'm going to talk to you this evening about um, some ethnographic field work that I did for about 10 years, uh, mostly with African Americans who were uh, using then a new tool of direct-to-consumer genetic testing to trace their ancestry. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit, take you on the journey that I went on um, in the course of doing this research and would lead to the findings that are in my book, The Social Life of DNA. And in the process, I'll tell you about um, how I originally thought of um, genetic genealogy testing as actually fairly recreational, a leisure tool, an extension of family history that many people, you know, some of your grandparents perhaps do or your parents do. And I came to see it as um, having a really interesting and distinctive kind of social role. And I came more generally to think about um, genealogy, family history, and now genetic genealogy as fairly interesting um, social practices that we don't really investigate deeply enough, and I'll give you some of the reasons why. So this is a photograph from my field work. I started doing this research when I was uh, a colleague at uh, uh, Hannah's at Yale, my, my dear friend Hannah, who I'm so glad to see and be reunited with. Um, so this was taken in 2006 um, at the African American Historical and Genealogical Society, its national meeting. I start doing this research in 2003. Um, Direct-to-consumer genetics starts in the UK in about 2000, comes to the United States 2002, 2003. Um, and in 2003, it was, today you could sort of probably ask many of you to raise your hands here and ask you if you've done any kind of direct-to-consumer genetic testing and um, a select, selection of you would say that. In 2003, it was impossible. I mean, one couldn't even just send out a survey instrument to find people who had used this technology because it was so new. And so I had to go out into the field and actually find the early adopters. I had to go and spend time with people who were doing conventional genealogy, often who'd been dedicated to it for decades, um, because these were the people who'd be first making that turn to the use of genetic ancestry testing. So this is in Massachusetts in the United States. Um, this was a time in 2006, a few years into the industry, where it wasn't a foregone conclusion to consumers that genetics could actually even be useful for thinking about genealogy, um, which might be hard to imagine right now, such that um, purveyors of genetic ancestry testing, um, geneticists who were interested in family history, interested in getting groups of families into genetic databases for their research, had to go to genealogy clubs and societies and associations just like me to find people who might be interested. In this case, um, a geneticist from the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, named Jamie Wilson, is doing a DNA 101 seminar to try to convince genealogists um, that genetics might be useful. And you can see the woman pictured here uh, who's holding a double helix. So a lot of information is collected in this slide from the fieldwork. Um, another thing I'll mention about this slide is that this suggests the original sort of sample of, of the people I talked to. So originally, when genetic ancestry testing enters the market, the people who are interested in it are genealogists, which tend to be almost always over the age of 50, mostly over the age of, a large swath of these people over 60 and 70. Um, many of them are middle class, if not upper middle class, because they would have had leisure time and leisure income to travel, to copy archives, and to have basically the time it takes to be a conventional genealogist. And they were almost exclusively women. Um, I take up from the social work literature the, the um, social role of kin keeping, which is um, typically women, which are in the social work literature, the one person you call in your family if you want to know about everyone else in your family. So you could call all your aunts and uncles and cousins, or you could call that one person, typically a woman in your family, who can give you the lowdown on everybody, divorces, marriages, new babies, in 10 minutes, and you can be done and caught up with the family. So we might think of family history, his, uh, his, family historians, genealogists, as being the Ken Keepers. So I, I mentioned that because today, obviously, this is completely different. Genetics genealogy has gone from being um, something speculative to something highly successful in the United States. 
States. It's a billion-dollar industry. It's gone for something being a leisure pursuit of senior citizens to being part of a quantified self-movement, so uh, young people in their teens and in their 20s who are keeping data about themselves in other different ways are also doing genealogy data. So it's become democratized in lots of different ways. This is from that same DNA 101 session here. Um, members of the audience are holding up uh, pieces of construction paper that represent the nitrogen bases that are found in the, de uh, the nucleotides that comprise DNA. So when you say DNA 101, it was quite literally a session that was telling people what DNA was. So I, I joined this national body of, Af of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. I joined a local chapter in my neighborhood of Harlem, New York, which is in Upper Manhattan and um, historically, in the, recent, in the 20th century, historically black neighborhood. I also traveled all around where people would go, where these um, early purveyors, geneticists would go to um, compel people about the, to compel interest in their work. This slide is, how many of you have been to Harlem in New York City? Anybody? A few? Yeah. So this slide is from the Latter-day Saints Church on 128th and Lenox Avenue, which some of you might know because it's this kind of curious uh, bit of architecture that's unlike the other architecture in Harlem a bit. Um, so the Mormons and many African Americans share this sort of conviction that you don't know where you're going until you know where you've been. So for African Americans, it's about, as I'll talk for most of my talk, about a kind of lost history. For Mormons, it's about their cosmology, right? So the, 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 the vision of heaven um, and the Latter-day Saint Church suggests that you can't be in, your family members cannot be with you in heaven unless you've effectively captured them in a pedigree chart. So this is at a Black History Month event that took place um, in this Harlem church, uh, and, and the woman pictured here is a woman named Sharon Wilkins, who was the president of the local chapter of the genealogical society that I joined in Harlem. And so we were there, as you will see, with members of the LDS church and also some African-American members from the local community. Um, and as you, many of you may know, the Mormon church has, um, uh, has been very significant um, in digitizing the records that are largely responsible for driving, um, with the, in addition to genetics, the, the interest in, in genealogy. So in my early work, um, I was interested in kind of questions of identity. Among other things, I'm the student of um, an, uh, a sociologist named Troy Duster, um, and so I, I was interested in thinking about ethically and critically about genetics and what, would, what were the implications of genetics and the use of genetics by African Americans in particular, um, given its fairly pernicious history in the United States and elsewhere. And I was also interested in, um, as some of the early articles in um, 02 and 03 in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times would suggest about whether or not people would be transforming their identities, right? Do you go from being an African American, which is effectively a continental identity, although we use it in the United States as if Africa was a nation state, we use it in parallel with Italian American, Scottish American, and the like? Um, or would people, you know, feel much the same after taking the tests? So some of the results I found were much like this. this these are a few um, uh, uh, images from uh, what has now become a big industry in direct-to-consumer genetic genealogy reality television shows. Um, Who Do You Think You Are comes from the UK and then is brought to the US. These shows actually really began in the UK. There's one in 2004 called Motherland on BBC4 um, that becomes uh, very important uh, for sort of um, creating a kind of narrative of, of, of among people of African descent of roots tracing, um, and you hear, see here some prominent African-American actors with the African-American study scholar Henry Louis Gates, who's had different iterations, African-American lives being one of them of these shows. So these show, I think, what you've come to expect, and in the course of doing my research, um, the, the reveal uh, became more and more part of people's um, narratives when I talked to them about their interviews. So it became important to people to have an audience to share their test results with. So as these, these shows uh, show revelation, completion, surprise, um, uh, lots of emotion about one's ancestry, um, and there is some stuff about identity. So unlike my first book, which was about health activism in the 1960s and 70s, that's a historical work um, that I published and it was when it was finished. Here I was now working on an object of social practice uh, that was emerging, and so I found myself 
publishing even as I was still doing the research. So this is some of uh, one of my first papers in the social studies of science in which I was thinking about and looking at how um, conventional genealogists, much like the ones I showed you in that very first slide, negotiated the information, the genetic ancestry inferences that they would read, receive from these direct-to-consumer companies. How would people who had spent in some cases 20, 30 years doing family history sort of navigate this with this new information? And to the contrary, I didn't find that it was the case that the genetic ancestry sort of trumped all their other ways of thinking about themselves. I found that these things were um, uh, much more sort of comp complicated and imbricated for reasons that I can explain later. So I also started to follow other instances in which genetic analysis was appearing um, uh, in, um, in the social sphere. And this led me to uh, the family and the story of a formerly enslaved man named Venture Smith. So as Hannah mentioned, she and I, I were teaching at Yale in the, in the early aughts. I'm in the aughts, and um, uh, Venture Smith is, uh, was died in Connecticut. He, and every year they have a Venture Smith Day in East Adam, Connecticut. And they celebrate him because uh, he brought himself, bought, purchased himself, his wife and his family out of slavery. He became a very successful businessman in Connecticut um, by the time of his passing in 1805. So he was of sort of immense interest to the state of Connecticut. Um, and it was, for me as a researcher, just up the road. And I became interested in Venture Smith because in about 2000, his family um, decided to allow his grave to be exhumed in order to see if there could be um, remains that were viable for genetic analysis. So these are some images from my field work. These are members of his family gathered um, at this congregational church cemetery in East Haddam, Connecticut. They lay a reef on his grave. There's members of his family here. So the family all knows who they are, in part because, as I said, Smith is an important historical figure. So the state genealogist of Connecticut has done work on this family. The state historian of, has done work on this family. Um, so unlike many African Americans, and frankly, uh, many Americans full stop, um, who don't know much about their ancestors from the 18th century, this family knows quite a lot about Venture Smith. So they give permission to a group of researchers from the University of Connecticut and from the University of Hull in the UK. These are geneticists, historians, anthropologists, archaeologists to do the exhumation. Um, and so it becomes very interesting to me because, um, uh, because we know a lot about Venture Smith. So not only is he a person of historical interest to the state of Connecticut, and a lot of resources have been dedicated to that. Um, we know a lot about him because he leaves behind one of the few slave narratives, a narrative of the life and adventures of Venture, a native of Africa. So we know that many slave narratives were written through an ammunesis, somebody who would help to um, translate or edit the words of the, the person who was, it was being written about. Um, but it's been sort of verified, if you will, by historians. Um, linguistics have looked uh, Linguists have looked at this work and have suggested that Venture was from contemporary Guinea. Most important for our, our story tonight about this narrative is that it begins on the continent of Africa, right? So Venture Smith leaves a full account of being a little boy in a village in what we think is contemporary Guinea, of the Middle Passage journey. He talks about a captain named Collingswood who, was the, uh, who helmed the ship um, that brought him to the Americas. Um, he tells us all about his journey and he tells us about his life once he arrives um, in, the, in the U.S. Um, so what's curious to me, in part as a researcher, is what we think the genetics can do if we have all of this history gathered by the state of Connecticut and we have his history about who he was in Africa, right, which is the, the holy grail for African-American genealogists. What was that pre-Middle Passage identity? And we have this verified moreover by historians. What did we think that we were finding out? So this was kind of a moment in my research where I began to think what African-Americans, and I think often with others as well, are doing with genetics is more than just about individual identity and family history, even it is, as it is about those things. I was lucky to be able to talk to a couple of his, um, he had two eighth generation descendants of uh, Venture Smith, and I sort of was able to ask them uh, um, and these various, as I went to these various Venture Smith days, what did you hope that you would get? So I think, you know, Someone could say, well, they don't have his haplotype group, and maybe that could give us some information. So yes, but we know lots and lots about him otherwise. So one of his descendants said to me, you know, we hope it'll help school children. We hope that it can have a kind of effectively an educational purpose. Another of his descendants pictured here, a woman named Florence Wormsley, would say she hoped that it could bring healing. 
And this was one of the moments in the research when I thought, we think that genetics can do a lot in the world. We think it answers questions about family history. Um, we also think it obviously potentially holds uh, the keys to unlock some sort of medical mysteries, but we actually think it has a kind of social power, and I became very interested in thinking about that. So more to the point, I took up um, the, uh, the um, uh, anthropologist Arjuna Potterai's mandate that of, in his Social Life of Things, which is an edited collection, must be the most impactful edited collection ever published, I think, actually, from, the 80, from 1988, in which he writes this seminal um, introductory essay and that's mostly writing about material culture, but he offers for us that it's about following objects around in the world that we come to understand what they mean. He says that it's by following the social life of things, things in motion, that we're able to illuminate their human and social context. And so I became interested in thinking about genetic ancestry testing in particular, but a sort of post-genomic or early, you know, genomic turn ancestry analysis, or genetic analysis rather, how it traveled in the world and what we thought it did. So we might think of there being sort of several genetic testing domains um, after, after the genome, after we have both the sort of supercomputing power um, and, the, and the sort of analysis of big data, gene, the, the genetics is a big data, is big data that allows us to do um, new kinds of work um, that, uh, the, you know, the, the geneticist Mary Claire King at the University of Washington says, after the Human Genome Project, we know that everybody's different and everybody's the same, right? And so part of what these tests allow is very, the various ways of thinking about how we're the same, of course, but sort of um, also new ways of mining the very, very thin vein of difference. So we might think of genetic testing domains as being a medical on the one hand, forensic in the criminal justice terrain uh, or sphere on the other hand, tests that are sort of ancestry, genealogical or recreational as one might say, and then paternity and family verification tests. So what I found in the course of doing my research asking people about genetic ancestry testing is that they thought about these things, um, they easily slid one into the other. So in my field of sociology, medical sociologists which would study medical genetics, criminologists would study, be interested in thinking about genetics and the criminal justice sphere, and we don't actually often study these things across. But as individuals understand them, um, they're always crossing. And the social life of DNA for me is both about the ways that DNA analysis, as we get into the genome term, travels between these domains, particularly in a moment of big data when it doesn't actually matter where the DNA data comes from, whether or not it comes from a forensic database or an ancestry database, it can be used um, simultaneously for lots of different, to give lots of different social information. So let me just give you just two examples um, that, uh, that made me think that genetics was, uh, particular genetic ancestry testing was doing something more than identity. So a woman I'll call Sarah said to me, we think breast cancer runs in our family. Now that I understand my African ancestry test, which is a company I'll say a little bit more about, and the difference between my mother's line and my father's line and all that, I have a better sense of what the genetic counselor at my doctor's office was telling me, right? So here, Genetic ancestry testing is sort of like a threshold to geneticization, to use the term that Abby Lippman coined, a way of thinking about genetics and other facets of one's life. A man I'll call Martin said to me, you know, I was never really interested in genetic science or the genome or whatever until I heard about these genetic genealogy tests. After I took my test, I wanted to learn everything about genetics. I started reading genetics articles in the newspaper, science magazines, science journals, and those sorts of things. So again, um, that genetic ancestry testing, far from being merely recreational, actually becomes very important for how people think about genetics in the world. So if you're a health researcher, public health researcher, and you're interested in people's health seeking behaviors, you need to understand that their experience with a company like 23andMe or African Ancestry actually bears on the things that you're interested in, far from being just a hobbyist or leisurely pursuit. So the social life of DNA for me is about the spillover between these sites or domains of, of um, genetic analysis and also about the multiple uses to which one type of genetic analysis is put. And I'm going to tell you a couple of stories, give you a couple of brief case studies in the rest of the time we have tonight about how the test of one company, African Ancestry, is used in various social projects that I call reconciliation projects. So this is Rick Kittles. He's one of a very small handful of African-American geneticists 
trained at George Washington University, finished his PhD in the early 1990s. Um, he starts, I'm going to tell you a little, in a little bit um, about the African Burial Ground Research Project because it's very important to the direct-to-consumer genetics market and African Americans in the United States. But what you should know about Rick at the, right now is that he was a junior scientist on this project, um, and it was here that he developed the techniques that would become his company. So this project, in brief, um, becomes a research project on remains of colonial, formerly enslaved um, Africans uh, in lower Manhattan in New York City. Um, and they're doing various kinds of analysis, which I will describe. And the question becomes, can we use new, then new, um, then um, not fully reliable ancient DNA analysis techniques to say something about these remains? So um, as the professors here in the room know, our graduate students are always smarter than us. Rick Kittles is the young whippersnapper graduate student on this project who comes up with an idea um, to create a reference database using publicly available um, gene bank data um, and to test some of these remains to the extent that they could get them and they weren't highly successful against this database to make some inferences, what they called macro-ethnic affiliations. So he takes this technique out of the laboratory, makes it into this commercial company, African Ancestry, which starts in 2003. Um, in 2003, there were only four direct-to-consumer genetic companies in the United States. Family Tree DNA was one of them, which is still in existence. Um, the other two have gone out of business. So African Ancestry is one of the two very first companies, direct-to-consumer genetic companies in the United States, and is indeed a pioneering one. So I want you to understand um, African-American genealogists, not as from my first slide, as being early adopters of direct-to-consumer genetics, which I think is not a story we often tell about it, and also this African-American geneticist and his business partner, Gina Page, who uh, had an economics degree from Stanford, as being among the pioneering companies and still existing companies from this, in this cottage industry. So African Ancestry, up until fairly recently, did only mitochondrial and Y-chromosome DNA analysis. Um, so if you think of one's genealogy as sort of an upside-down piece of pie and the ego or you being here, it would trace the mother's line and the father's line only, um, not tracing any of the ancestry in the middle of the pie, which is all where all the good stuff is. Um, but, um, you know, geneticists tell us that um, the mitochondrial line and the... And the um, uh, then the Y chromosome DNA line are quite informative, particularly the surname line, the patrilineal line, um, given um, uh, uh, the way that marriage patterns and surnames um, are changed, um, go from, from fathers to sons in the United States. So used together, they can be very powerful genealogically. Um, and also there's not a lot of mutation um, in these lines, and so um, they're reliable in that way, even though you leave out a lot of information in the interior, mothers to daughters to um, mothers to children to grandmothers and the like and fathers to sons to grandfathers on the other side. So this company, there's lots of ways to translate that. So you could do patrilineage testing or Y chromosome testing and give people sets of genetic markers. Um, there's other ways to render that data. Um, um, but this company gives a certificate of ancestry because what's important for many African Americans is that to have an identity or some inference of an identity before the middle passage, right? To not only be African American, continental identity, but potentially to be Ghanaian American, um, to be, um, Nigerian-American and the like. So I want to suggest, I want to show you how this company's tests, and um, I talked to lots of people who use lots of different tests, but I just want to tell you this one story tonight, and you'll see here that this um, person is inferred to be related to the Temne of Sierra Leone. Um, are circulated in what I call reconciliation projects. So I'll just, so we go from the African burial ground to um, these are, this is a genealogist, um, African-American genealogist in colonial costume. So there's a kind of cosplay for genealogists pictured with a geneticist um, to a historic slavery reparations case, which I'll tell you about, to um, desires for diasporic identity based on DNA. This is the passport of the actor Isaiah Washington, which I'll say more about as well. So I came to think of genetic ancestry testing not only as not being merely recreational, but also as being part of a bigger kind of world historical social practice, right? So I came to, to look to explore, beginning in the 80s, the uses of genetics and forms of social justice work um, and work that's called humanitarian DNA. So example of this might be um, the mothers and grandmothers of the May Plaza in Argentina after the junta there, beginning sort of in 83, 84. Uh, the 
geneticist Mary Claire King, who I mentioned to you earlier, um, starts to work with these human rights activists, first using HLA antigen analysis, blood analysis, and then eventually DNA analysis to um, try to return the identities of the, the disappeared grandchildren and children, um, mostly of uh, activists, disappeared of activists um, during this, uh, this authoritarian regime. So I want to understand genetic ancestry testing in the U.S. not as only being about individual identity, but a being about the use of genetics to solve historical mysteries, historical controversies um, uh, that resolve, that different kinds, forms of societies, different societies and communities are trying to resolve. So this is Mary Claire King here holding up a test tube with two members of, uh, two grandmothers of the May Plaza um, and the activists there who are looking for their niños desparaciado, presido, my bad Spanish, um, lost children disappeared children. So in my work, I'm particularly interested in what we might call a subset of this larger global movement, right, which is the resolution of injuries produced by racial slavery in the United States and the Americas sought through the use of genetic analysis. So we might think of an example as this as part of this as um, some really important work that was done uh, in the 1990s, including this paper in Nature about the descendants of Thomas Jefferson, right? This moment in which we turn to genetics to resolve what we think is a sort of historical, what some think is a historical controversy. I think a lot of historians in the United States never thought this was a historical controversy. So using Y chromosome analysis, um, this paper um, by Eugene Foster, Mark Jobling, and others sort of decides and concludes in its title that Jefferson fathered slave's last child. So there goes on to be controversy around this because if it's a Y chromosome, it could be um, someone who was in a patrilineal line with Jefferson, um, but the historians say that the preponderance of the evidence suggests that it was one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who fathered the children of Sally Hemings. But this becomes an interesting moment. I mean, happening uh, you know, a few years before this also are um, Brian Sykes' work with the, trying to decide the, if the remains that had been discovered were remains of the, the Tsarina and these other sorts of historical mystery solving with genetics. And, okay, I'll move ahead. So I'm going to go back to 1991 to the African burial ground, Lower Manhattan. Some of you might have visited there. It's now a national monument. Um, the a federal, the General Services Administration, a part of the U.S. government, wants to put a federal building there. Um, and uh, there were some early uh, archaeological, some historical work that suggested it was next to a butted a cemetery called the African Negroes Burying Ground historically. Um, but they went along anyways um, and began the the construct the the, the construction work. So. The construction work soon became, the construction site soon became an archaeological site because remains were discovered there. Um, and the work was um, initially uh, given to a local city college, City University of New York College, um, the Metropolitan Forensic Anthropology Team, which does sort of CSI kind of uh, work um, in New York City. So this becomes, the site becomes very controversial. It becomes controversial because on the one hand, you have cultural activists who are doing 24-hour uh, candlelight vigils, drumming vigils, who say, stop this work immediately and rest the souls of our deceased ancestors. Just cut it out. Then you have um, a, a group of other activists, and these are mostly African-American activists, who are taking up um, the, the legal authority that indigenous groups, that Native American groups have to make decisions to be at the table to sit for decision making around the disposition of remains, right? Um, and so they're very much disturbed by um, the fact that this is, these remains are being sent to a kind of CSI, a lab that's interested in technical things about the remains, you know, is this, um, uh, you know, a negroid femur, how much does it weigh, um, you know, how long is it, as opposed to asking questions about the history of slavery and about the lived conditions of the people who were buried there. So the second group of activists became very interesting to me because part of what they were asking, they wanted the remains to be moved to another lab, which I'll tell you about, um, but they also wanted, they were, but they were fine with genetic analysis being done on the remains and also with craniometry being done on the remains. So the question for me as a researcher became, you know, how do you have African, and it also became a question about genetic ancestry testing. So how do you have African-American activists, African-American consumers who are aware of the history of scientific experimentation 
Washington. Um, here's an adver here's an um, article from July 29, 1972 from the New York Times, which exposes the then 40-year-long uh, Tuskegee syphilis study um, that let Tuskegee let syphilis proceed in African Americans untreated um, under the with the understanding or the hypothesis is that it, it would proceed differently in African Americans than it did in people in European descent. Um, we know from historical research like that of Joanna Schoen about the history of eugenics um, in North Carolina and other places in the United States. So here you have, and then of course this is in the context of a Jim Crow that included waiting rooms, forms, other forms of medical segregation um, and medical discrimination. So why in this context, given this history, um, would African Americans in particular um, put their DNA in a FedEx envelope and send it to um, effectively a lab in Salt Lake City, Utah, the Sorensen Genetics Lab, and after which the data would be returned to Rick Kittles and he would analyze it against his proprietary reference database? Why would that be the case? And why would these activists at this site say, we're okay with you analyzing the remains that you excavated here, um, but we want them to be done in a different way? How did they sort of um, uh, walk that fine line? So this is Michael Blakey, who's an African-American physical anthropologist who at the time was teaching at Howard University, um, which is a historically black institution in the United States. Um, the activists went to Blakey to sort of look at the research design that was being used by Lehman College and effectively in shorthand here it became a kind of identity politics about a historically white institution and historically black institution but there were also lots of critiques of uh, the, the, re the, the ways in which the, re the remains were being dealt with so for example Lehman College wasn't using um, the highest quality of conservation materials the, the bones were sort of placed on top of each other they weren't using acid-free paper um, pretty basic things. But there was also um, some issues around the epistemological issues, and this is how activists were able to split the difference between this legacy of racist genetics and what they thought they could do with genetic analysis and later genetic ancestry testing. So Blakey would say, Lehman College's methodology reduced the individuals in the burials to narrow typologies and thinly descriptive variables and disassociated them from their particular culture or history. The activists who call themselves descendants of the African burial ground, which go, to go back to, as I was saying, taking up the symbolism of, um, uh, of the, the sort of role that Native Americans can play with regard to the disposition of, some, of grave remains, um, because certainly this is a, a symbolic identity in that none of these activists knew for sure that they were descendants of people really here, right? So this is a political invocation. So putting a finer point on Blakey's um, sentiment, the activist said that the classification of the African burial ground remains being carried out by the Lehman College lab amounted to the biological racing of their ancestors' bodies, and that they said that they were merely op opposed to descriptive frameworks that would reduce their ancestors' social identity to skin color. So I'm going to move ahead. So this is what the African Burial Ground Project would look like um, when the remains would be successfully moved to Howard University. Um, so they combined, they used what they call the biocultural interdisciplinary research strategy um, that allowed the ability, that offered the ability to answer some of these historical questions, these questions about life chances um, that the, the and, and, li and cultural experiences that the activists and the Howard University researchers were interested in. So they used history and archaeology, they used entomorphology, they looked at phenotypic traits, traits, but then they also used two seemingly problematic, but not problematic anymore, um, uh, methods, craniometrics and molecular genetics, right? And the hope was that through the use of this biocultural strategy, this multidisciplinary strategy um, that did not only rely on craniometry only or molecular genetics only, but used them together with other forms of research. And I should say this strategy has become um, really important for people who are doing um, genetic research with ancient DNA remains. So there was a, a really nice paper in PNAS from about a year ago, um, a group of researchers from Copenhagen led by Hannes Schroeder um, did a similar type of, of interdisciplinary disciplinary research strategy and they attribute their methodology to following the strategy of the African burial ground. So this is Michael Blakey pictured here 
And he tells us what's at stake and why these activists would be on board with using genetics and craniometry to, you know, sort of, uh, um, uh, sort of, uh, you might say, signs of, of a history of, of racial science or scientific racism um, in concert with these other um, methodologies. So he understood, he said, the scientific research now underway constitutes another dimension of a long-standing human rights struggle, right? And this is, again, to say that genetic analysis is being used for these larger purposes and the U.S. and elsewhere, right? We seek to restore knowledge of the origins and identities that were deliberately obscured in the effort to dehumanize Africans as slaves. So the historian Michael Gomez tells us that one of the outcomes of the chattel slavery experience was racialization, was the creation of the original sin, the obsession that we have in the United States that seems bizarre not only to Americans, but uh, to people from not from the United States, but also to Americans, this, this race making that happens. So he describes the Middle Passage journey from the continent of Africa to points um, in the Americas and elsewhere as a transition from a socially stratified, by the way, an NYU historian, those of you who might have taken a class with him, tra a transition from a socially stratified, ethnically based identity directly tied to a specific land um, and to an identity predicated on the concept of race. So African-American as an identity, black as an identity, Negro as an identity, slave as an identity, is this concept of race, is this in some ways, this caste making, this race making. We know from the sociologist Mary Waters um, that ethnic options, as she calls them, are constrained for African-Americans, right? Um, that, who don't have other options, who don't have the ability to identify as Irish-American or you know, as, with a nation state in a specific culture, specific foodways, specific uh, land and the like. She tells us African-American, black Americans are highly constrained to identify as blacks without other options available to them, even when they believe or know that their forebearers included many non-blacks. So part of what genetic ancestry testing offers is the opening up the possibility of ethnic options for a community that might not have otherwise had them. So where do these tests go? I'm going to tell you first about the SARA. So this is um, uh, in a, uh, a ceremony, a kind of religious ceremony that I went to um, in 2009 um, and just outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and this is the actor Isaiah Washington I mentioned to you, um, who I followed around and interviewed a couple times in my fieldwork because he was one of the early adopters. He got his genetic ancestry inference in 2004. Um, and you would recognize him from Grey's Anatomy and many other sort of television shows. And, and um, he's in a kind of science fiction um, show, a television show these days. So he was, I was invited to this event of about 30 people on the shore of the Ashley River. Um, among these people were a group that called themselves DNA Sierra Leoneans. Isaiah Washington is one of a, a DNA Sierra Leonean. Um, he, um, uh, on his, used through matrilineage testing from the African Ancestry Company. And the, this SARA ceremony was about reconciling people who lay, who claim lake ancestry claims, have ancestry claims in Sierra Leone, um, uh, um, who, so it was a ceremony of remembrance for people who have ancestry in Sierra Leone um, and many of whom live in the Carolina Low Countries. So Isaiah Washington, a DNA Sierra Leonean, the woman in the purple is a woman named Tomalin Polite, um, whose family can trace themselves via slave ship manifest to contemporary Sierra Leone. She was the ancestor, I think the great, 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 great granddaughter of a little girl named Priscilla, um, who was brought here on a slave ship from contemporary um, Sierra Leone to, the, to South Carolina. And the gentleman in purple is um, uh, Sierra Leonean immigrant who was living in Dallas who had flown to Charleston that day to be the officiant of the ceremony called Asara. So why South Carolina, why Charleston, why this sort of little bend in the Ashley River? Um, because it was important in the slave trade. It was the site of at least two large slaves as a point of disembarkment for transatlantic slavery and the site of, of, site of um, two, at least two big uh, well-known um, slave auctions. So the Sara ceremony consisted of Amadou Masali casting um, soil from uh, allegedly to, from Sierra Leone into the Ashley River, pictured here. There was a leaf a wreath laying. This gentleman was also a DNA Sierra Leonean. And it was a very solemn occasion. And here we have genetic ancestry testing allowing a kind of reconciliation project that 
goes through these individual identities, but was a, an occasion for a group of people to collectively have um, a religious ceremony effectively about the history of the slave trade and about the trauma of, and loss of the slave trade and to try to um, have a sense of reconciliation around that. So that's one of the places we might say that these tests travel. Another, another attempt to use the test happens with the Leon Sullivan Foundation, um, which I'll tell you a little bit about. Leon Sullivan is the gentleman in the center, excuse me, um, in the dark suit. He's pictured next to Martin Luther King here. Um, he was a civil rights era preacher, Baptist preacher based in Philadelphia. Um, and um, he, as Baptist preachers did, um, had several messianic visions. One of his messianic visions was about the African diaspora. So he said, I heard and heeded a call from God and from Africa and African Americans and others of the black diaspora to at least try to unite people of African heritage with Africa to make a link to build a bridge. So this would really be his life's work. By the time of his passing in 2004, uh, he had dual citizenship in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, the Gambia, um, and he spent a lot of time um, sort of building diasporic networks. Um, Sullivan might be known to those of you who study business ethics as the, the progenitor of the, the, of the Sullivan principles, which are ethical principles um, by which um, multinational corporations could operate in apartheid South Africa, although some would say there were no, way, no ethical principles on under which a business should be operating there. He was important as the first African-American on major corporate boards, including GM. So in 1991, he starts a series of summits, biennial summits on the continent of Africa, uh, various countries, uh, east, west, and, um, and the southern part of Africa over the course of the years. Um, and uh, these summits were basically these gatherings of African elites, um, African-American elites, and American elites full stop, um, over the years, uh, these ran from um, 1991 to 2008. Attendees included uh, President George Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Paul Wolfowitz, the former World Bank leader. So these were very significant events. So. Um, in 2007, the Leon Sullivan Summit uh, Foundation passes a resolution that encourages African-Americans who are going to go to this biennial summit, um, the next one um, taking place in Arusha, um, to use genetic ancestry testing. So. Uh, Sullivan had thought about, you know, the bridge and the link to Africa that he had in his vision as being political, as being spiritual, as being already known. I'm a person of African descent. I'm part of the African diaspora. Now people were being encouraged to find specific linkages to African ethnic groups and do targeted and niche marketed social and economic development work based on their genetic ancestry testing. You'll see here, this is a screenshot from the 2008 um, summit in Arusha, that African ancestry is the partner. So part of the registration for um, this conference was this partnership. And it was a kind of reimagining of the African diaspora from something that was, again, a political identity of linked fate, to use the, the political scientist Michael Dawson's phrase, or a spiritual identity or something that didn't have to be, have any kind of basis of affiliation that was simply assumed. So the sort of hoped for outcome, the aspirational outcome of this kind of project um, is dual citizenship. Uh, dual citizenship like that that was obtained by Isaiah Washington in 2010. Um, this is his passport to Sierra Leone, um, which he carries around with him in the United States. Um, he, this, I took this photograph um, at an event in Atlanta um, in 2010. So as I mentioned, there were uh, cultural activists who did drumming and uh, candlelight vigils um, at the African burial ground. Um, among these was a woman named Deidre Farmer-Paleman, um, who had come to know Rick Kittles, the geneticist who was a junior researcher um, working on the African burial ground project, um, because uh, she had um, gone to George Washington and received a master's degree there. And she also came to know of his work as an activist at the site. She becomes an important historical figure less than a decade later when she becomes the lead plaintiff in a class action suit for reparations for racial slavery. So there had been other attempts in the United States to use the courts of law um, for, uh, to advance the cause of reparations, but there hadn't been one in close to 100 years um, because they came up against different um, barriers, um, standing doctrine, um, which said, are you, know, you have, are you the person to whom injury has been done and to whom restitution is owed? And also the, the, um, in the U.S. law, uh, the, the doctrine of sovereign immunity, which means that the executive branch effectively can't sue itself for reparations. 
So she comes up with another strategy for reasons I can tell you about in Q&A, um, in which she decides to um, sue 21 multinational corporations that exist in the United States in some form of another based on the wealth and proceeds from chattel slavery. So among these companies are CSX, which is the transportation company, um, which, uh, tran which trans transported um, enslaved Africans across the United States and still exists today. Um, Aetna, an uh, insurance company um, that insured enslaved Africans on beha behalf of owners. Um, Fleet Boston, banking industry, Lloyds of London were others in this lawsuit. So this goes to court and goes to trial at a Manhattan court in 2002. Um, and by 2004, uh, you, needless to say, these 21 multinational corporations had, you know, five times for each corporation as many lawyers, um, and uh, these eight plaintiffs were severely outgunned in the courtroom, um, even though they actually worked with, among other attorneys, an attorney named Edward Fagan, who a year before had um, successfully tried um, a, a, a reparations case effectively for Holocaust survivors um, that got restitution from Swiss banks. So there's a 2004 dismissal based on several different things, but mostly on the doctrine of standing, which in the U.S. court says, as I said, are you the injured parties? Can you demonstrate that you're the party that's been injured um, and that restitution is owed to you? This dismissal says that the plaintiffs cannot stand, establish a personal injury sufficient to confer standing by, as the court said, merely alleging some genealogical relationship to African Americans held in slavery over 100 or 200 or 300 years ago as part of this dismissal. This is Farmer Paleman again, pictured one of her attorneys. So she decides and her lawyers decide to return to the court with a narrower claim. Fewer plaintiffs, fewer, same number of plaintiffs, fewer defendants. And they go in 2004 to the African Ancestry Company's offices in Washington, D.C. and get mitochondrial and Y-chromosome DNA testing. They purchase them. They enter them as evidence in this civil court tort case. Um, there's lots to say about this. I mean, again, I want part of the takeaway I want you to think about African Americans as being sort of pioneers and early adopters here. So here you have three years before the emergence of 23andMe. 23andMe does not even exist yet. You have African Americans using genetic ancestry testing um, disproportionately in the U.S. population and also using it to advance a long-standing social justice or civil rights cause, depending on your perspective. So test results that infer ancestry to the Gambia, Niger, Nigeria, and other places of the plaintiffs are interested, entered to a, a court, an appellate court, which again rejects them. So by 2006 in March, um, there's a second uh, Re, um, rejection of the case. And this rejection says that genetic mapping or DNA testing alone is insufficient to provide a decisive link to homeland. So this reconciliation project is not a successful one, um, but it sort of keeps the drumbeat for this longstanding struggle going forward. Um, those of you um, who were in the U.S. at the time in the summer of 2014 um, will remember that there was a, a big happening, which was the publication of Ta-Nehisi Coates' article on reparations on the cover of the Atlantic magazine, making a case for reparations that continued this conversation. And certainly some of you know that um, Every year for, um, uh, for um, several decades, um, Representative John Conyers had tried, has tried to enter, enter into committee H.R. 40, which is a bill that says that we should sort of condemn the historical fact of slavery and have a conversation about it. It does not offer reparations, and it never gets out of committee. So what to say about these um, reconciliation projects? So part of it, what I want to leave you with, is um, this idea of the trans-scientific. So Alvin Weinberg um, was a, a chemist, a scientific researcher, um, who also was a public intellectual um, and uh, wrote essays about science and politics. Um, for him, science and politics were sort of separate things, never the twain shall meet. Um, as a sociologist of science, I understand these things to be deeply in interrelated from the very beginning. But I think his, quite, his issue of the trans-scientific is very interesting for, for a different reason than he intended. So for Weinberg, he says there are questions which can be asked of science and yet which cannot be answered by science. I propose the term trans-scientific for these questions since though they are, epistemologically speaking, questions of fact and can be stated in the language of science, they are unanswerable by science, they transcend science. So with regards to reconciliation projects, both those in the United States um, and those abroad, a question we might answer our, ask ourselves in this moment is, 
to what extent are we asking science to do the work of social justice and morals and ethics, right? Um, and in this moment in the United States where we're having debates about alternative facts, we're coming up against the limits of what facts can do, how facts can move things uh, in the world. Um, and, you know, we might consider sort of swish, just explicitly and passionately shifting um, registers um, to issues of justice and ethics. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.